This episode 108 of The Far Middle first airs on June 14, which is Flag Day. The day itself might be a relatively new tradition, but it ties to an official act of government a long time ago. Specifically, Flag Day commemorates the adoption of the flag of the United States on June 14, 1777, by resolution of the Second Continental Congress, and that flag resolution stated, Resolved that the flag of the 13 United States be 13 stripes, alternate red and white, that the Union be 13 stars, white in a blue field, representing a new constellation. So the design was set in 1777, and then as the nation grew, of course, and the states were added to the Union, it's simply the flag that it just simply expanded the number of stars in that blue field. And by the way, a little factoid you only hear on the far middle, June 14th also marks the birthday of the United States Army which was born officially back in 1775. But back to Flag Day. In 1916, President Woodrow Wilson, and that's not your host's favorite president, I must admit, but President Wilson issued a proclamation that officially established June 14 as Flag Day. Then in 1949, National Flag Day was established by Congress, and Flag Day is not an official federal holiday, at least not yet. Now, here's a cool aspect of Flag Day. Western Pennsylvania plays a very prominent role in its history. You see, back in 1937, Pennsylvania became the first state to celebrate Flag Day as a state holiday, and that started in the town of Rennerdale, Pennsylvania. And that community, Rennerdale, is a suburb of Pittsburgh. It's 10 minutes from where I'm recording this, and I've got lifelong friends who are from and who still live in Rennerdale. That's the community that took Flag Day to a higher level. Okay, on to our sports dedication. Flag Day is as American as it gets, and so is baseball. So let's connect to what happened in the sport of baseball on Flag Day. This day, this episode 108 first airs June 14th. And some of the biggest names in the history of baseball, they managed to achieve feats on June 14th that would fall into the accumulator and record categories. Now, whether it be for a game, season, or career, And the best way for me to explain this to you is just to give you the examples themselves. I think it becomes self-explanatory. So let's start first on June 14th in 1933. Lou Gehrig and Joe McCarthy, the manager, they got thrown out of a game for poor conduct, as at least reported by the New York Times back then, and I'm not sure specifically what they had done. But here's the important part. McCarthy, the manager, he received a three-game suspension. Lou Gehrig, importantly, was not suspended. Now, why is that important, and what does it have to do with accumulating records? Well, because Gehrig did not receive a suspension, his consecutive game streak continued on at 1,249 games. And he ended up, as we know, with 2,130 consecutive games played. So if the league would have suspended Gehrig back in 1933, Ripken would have ended up breaking Everett Scott's consecutive game record. Who? Exactly. So you fast forward from Gehrig in 1933. Let's go to Warren Spahn in 1952. The legendary lefty struck out a National League record 18 batters on June 14th, and he pitched 15 innings to do it. It's amazing when compared to pitchers and pitch count of today. And by the way, Spahn also homered in that game, and he lost the game. The Braves did not win the game. Let's move on to 1969. Um, On that June 14th, Reggie Jackson, then with the Oakland A's, before he ended up with the Yankees. He posted 10 RBIs in a single game. Now, some players don't post 10 RBIs in a month, and some players don't post 10 RBIs in a season. 
Jackson did it in a game on June 14th in 1969. How about 1974 in what Nolan Ryan did on June 14th that year? He fanned 19 Red Sox batters while pitching 13 innings of a 15-inning game. So that's Warren Spawn-like. One more K for Ryan, but uh, two more innings pitched for Spawn. Then in 1979, on June 14, Willie Stretch McCovey slugged his 513th home run as a left-handed hitter, and that's a National League record for lefties. And the only left-handed batter with more home runs than McCovey is the Babe. And then finally, in 1992, on June 14th, the Wizard of Oz, Ozzy Smith, he takes part in his 1,305th double play, which broke the National League record for shortstops. So there you have our episode 108 dedication to the collection of six baseball immortals, Garrick, Spawn, Jackson, Ryan, McCovey, Smith, who each established a piece of their stellar resumes on this June 14th in history. That was fun. Let's connect summer and baseball stadiums to the traffic fans experience getting to and from those venues because traffic is increasingly being used as justification to tax the driver to the point of, well, no longer driving. And allow me to provide a prime example. News in early May was that the Biden administration gave the go-ahead or the green light, and that's pun intended as you'll shortly see, to New York City to proceed with New York's proposed congestion pricing plan. And this is where major cities like the Big Apple, they wish to tax drivers and cars during peak times. And the justification for the new tax is to reduce traffic congestion. And that justification proves to be quite ironic because the politicians and the environmentalists and the bureaucrats who are the proponents of the congestion pricing tax to reduce traffic congestion are the same people who created the congestion problems in large cities to begin with. How? Through an array of weaponry presented as sustainability theater. This includes bike lanes in cities where no one rides a bike, especially in winter. Bus lanes, so empty buses can run up and down the lanes, burning fuel and tax dollars for little to no benefit. Pedestrian walkways, so affluent urbanites can leisurely walk to and from their overpriced shops and high-end restaurants. One-way streets and traffic lights and stop signs at every road intersection and crossing. And all of this was designed to slow traffic down to a crawl. And it worked. Then once traffic slows to a crawl and drivers can't seem to get anywhere, here comes the politician and environmentalist and bureaucrat again, and they say, we have a solution. We will tax the drivers during peak times to make the problem go away. But you see, the driver wasn't the problem to begin with. There are three lessons to learn from this congestion pricing movement, and we need to learn them quickly because New York City is just the start of the urban congestion pricing movement. Here's the three lessons. First, the left, whether it be a progressive politician or a rabid environmentalist, it's very adept at running a tactical play whereby they create a problem through policy. So they put in bike lanes, bus lanes, et cetera, to manufacture a congestion of cars. And then they use that self-created problem to justify the next thing or the next policy that they are after. In this case, use the self-inflicted, self-induced traffic congestion to justify taxing drivers, which means to justify basically punishing drivers. Second lesson, the rationale that is advertised for this tax is to reduce traffic congestion. But the real reason, the lesson we need to learn here is to throw yet another assist subsidy and dollar to public transportation. Now in New York, 
The only people who ride the subway are those that are forced to. They don't have a car or they can't afford parking or they can't afford ride hailing. And they're basically stuck. And even with much of the population being stuck to use a less efficient and horrible service like public transportation, the New York public transportation system remains a complete dumpster fire of a mess. The wheels have come off the buses and the subway has come off the rails, literally. So the answer for the left, who loves removing the personal car and replacing it with public transportation, is to make even more people be stuck with having to use the bus or the subway. How do they do that? By raising the cost of driving a car in Manhattan to where it becomes prohibitively expensive. And the third lesson is that the environmental movement these days is not really about climate change. It's definitely not about CO2 or global warming. It's about stifling and eradicating the freedom of individuals to choose for themselves. You won't drive that car. You must use this mode of transport. The Church of Climate, as we predicted for now over two years on the Far Middle podcast, it's coming for everyone everywhere, person by person, place by place, day by day. Power plants in Appalachia yesterday, Drivers in Manhattan today, you tomorrow. And by the way, I'm sort of proud to say I called this a few years back in my book, Precipice, The Left's Campaign to Destroy America. Give it a read if you get a chance. You can order it on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Links can be found on my website, nickdeolius.com. And all net proceeds go to the CNX Foundation's Mentorship Academy. So your purchase also helps with a great effort. Speaking of cars and traffic, let's connect to what is going on in the world of electric vehicles or EVs. Back in March, Ford announced that it lost over $2 billion on its EV business in 2022, and that was double the loss that Ford posted in EVs in 2021. Now, my friend and energy expert Robert Bryce reported that Ford made just over 61,000 electric vehicles in 2022, so let's do some simple division. And that division tells us that Ford lost about $34,000 on every electric vehicle it sold last year. And this could get worse because the cost of manufacturing EVs is going up rapidly. And the cost of batteries and EVs alone were up 7% year on year. Actually, it is getting worse for Ford and for its electric vehicle effort this year. In early May, Ford reported over a $700 million loss on its EV business for the first quarter of 2023. So that's just for the first quarter. And during Q1 of this year, Ford sold almost 11,000 electric vehicles, which again, under our trusty division, means it lost more than $66,000 on every EV it sold. Now, that's almost double the loss per EV from 2022. And yeah, it's getting worse for sure. Think about it. Ford is losing more on each EV that it sells than most people pay when buying a new gasoline combustion engine vehicle. Now, the car experts at J.D. Power They had an interesting take on what is going on with EV demand from the consumer perspective. JD says there is a divide growing with American drivers when it comes to EVs and gasoline-powered cars. More and more shoppers for cars have made their mind up that they will not even consider an EV, according to JD Power. Specifically, they found over 20% of consumers say they're very unlikely to consider an EV for their next vehicle, and that number has been growing. J.D. Power lists key reasons as to why to include buyers worried about the lack of public charging infrastructure, lost time for charging, range concerns, and of course, the high price of EVs itself. And on this topic of price, understand the EV is a product exclusively for the affluent. The average EV buyer has an annual income of about $150,000. That's twice, by the way, of the U.S. average income. 
Now, don't expect the government or policymakers to act rationally off of these facts and trends, constant listeners. We all know better than that by now. What we should expect is exactly what we've been seeing, with government doubling down on the failed tactics that got us into this market mess that is the EV industry, because doing so avoids accountability, it covers up the exposed failings, and it protects the religion of the left and the church of climate at all costs. Congestion pricing and EV mandates, those are tactics within the larger portfolio of the left these days, and that leads us to a broader connection. What happens when the left gains control of the political, bureaucratic, and regulatory process or processes in states? Well, the short answer is that people experience a declining quality of life, and the ones who can leave, they head for the exits. Pandemics created a spectrum of government responses, with the states controlled by the left, of course, experiencing the most draconian and egregious prohibitions for the longest, and the massive spending levels to go along with them which is, of course, adding insult to injury, plus the biggest increases in value appropriation to go along with those via higher taxes that were enacted. So the annual IRS data on income migration is out for 2021. Yes, government data has a bit of a lag time tied to it, but the IRS data, they are always interesting because the data include both changes in population and the income of movers from state to state. And now that we have the 2021 IRS data, the extent of the pandemic's policies across states and their impacts on income migration, you can start to assess those. And I think the results are very, very interesting. So allow me to to share a few of those results with you. Not a surprise, but Florida was the clear winner during the pandemic. It enjoyed over $60 billion of income from net domestic migration in 2020-2021. Texas was second best, but it wasn't even close to Florida. Texas came in at $17 billion, which was just over a quarter of what Florida's gains were. And to make an even more extreme point, just look at one county within Florida, Palm Beach County, added more, that county did, added more new income during the pandemic than every state in the union except Florida and Texas. That's amazing. The average tax return moving to Florida was $80,000 more than the tax return for a person leaving that state. And I guess that there were a lot of affluent EV buyers that moved to Florida. Now, another non-surprise was who made up the biggest losers in pandemic migration. Uh, The leftist leaders in California and New York, they raised income taxes and paid the price by losing over $40 billion each during 2020 and 2021 in income migration. Manhattan served as the yin to the Palm Beach County Yang. Manhattan lost over $30 billion during the pandemic when it comes to income migration, which was more than any other state not named New York and California. So income into low-tax states and out-of-high-tax states doubled during the pandemic. Corporate headquarters, they're generally moving in correlation to the individual income migration trends that we just discussed. And the out-migration of higher-income residents will begin to negatively impact state tax bases that lost those residents. And of course, it's going to bolster the tax revenues for the states that added them. Same trend for school enrollment levels. And all of this has only accelerated since the IRS data from 2020-2021. The trend continues. The trend accelerates. The trend is your friend if you are Florida or Texas. And the trend is definitely not your friend if you are New York or California. 
Why don't we hear more about this booming in pro-free market states and cratering in leftist-run states? Well, we know the reasons why. Those realities, they run counter to the dogma. Let me connect to another example of where people's heads are really at on a topic that we hear all the time about and where the media pretends that public opinion or perception is at. In March, Heatmap was an, is an outlet, uh, and Heatmap ran and published the results of a poll of 1,000 adult Americans across the country. And this poll found that 79% of Americans said that new renewable energy should be rolled out slowly rather than quickly, and that the conservation of land and wild animals should be prioritized above rapid greenhouse gas reductions. Now, that makes sense to me, and I'm sure it makes sense to you. We Americans might not be the most culturally deep of people, but we do enjoy a history of embracing common sense, or at least 99% of us that don't set policy in government. So most of us thinking that tangible conservation today of land and animal life is more important than a speedy renewable energy rollout to address an intangible future issue. That makes sense. Now, here's a quote from the lead journalist that, uh, that reported on this poll. They said only 21% of Americans agreed with the statement that we should roll out renewable energy quickly to lower emissions as fast as possible, even if it means harming natural land or wild animals. And the journalist continued, in other words, you don't necessarily need recourse to astroturfing schemes or secret fossil fuel connections to explain why so many Americans oppose new renewable projects. You know, those poll results and that conclusion I just read, they're nearly opposite of what mainstream media reports and worse yet, fabricated public sentiment counter to what this poll proved along with the science it's used to justify a mad dash to unreliable wind and solar and EVs at scale. And we're going to track this closely on future Far Middle episodes because I believe a reckoning is coming across communities all over the U.S. map. This mandated and forced energy transition is going to disrupt countless communities and towns across America to the detriment of the people and the land and the wildlife. So expect growing and mounting resistance to wind and solar projects. And we're already seeing examples as we speak. We can connect to what's going on across flyover country and rural small town America. In less than a decade, local communities and jurisdictions have rejected or restricted wind or solar projects nearly 500 times. The reasons for the resistance are obvious. Noise impacts, wildlife being killed, loss of land and real estate values, eyesores, and so on. And it's a David versus Goliath situation in most instances. The big multi-billion dollar corporation comes in wanting to lay waste to thousands of acres for wind and solar. The locals object, but now they go up against the best in the business when it comes to lawyers, lobbyists, and litigators. It's obscene how the media has created this false image of the green, sustainable, innovative company looking to save the planet through the energy transition. The reality, it's a deep-pocketed corporation often not even with a domestic company sort of status, with few to no ties to the local impacted community, using old world technology that's been around forever to create more expensive and less reliable energy that will not decrease CO2 emissions on a life cycle basis or have any measurable impact on climate, but that will result in billions of dollars in subsidy going from the taxpayer pocket into the corporation's pocket and that will wreck the local community in the process with a bullying mentality. That's the real energy transition on the front lines, constant listeners. And people beyond these afflicted small towns, they're starting to catch on 
about the myth of the energy transition and the code red fabrications that go with it. A great leading indicator where you can see how sentiment is catching up to reality can be found with how shareholders are voting on anti-fossil fuel proxy proposals at big Wall Street banks' annual meetings. Now, the public company annual shareholder meeting has been abused the past few years by entities looking to grab attention for attention's sake when it comes to the world of radical environmentalism. And banks are a prime target because they're a funding source for domestic energy companies in the oil and natural gas and power generation industries, plus they're big banks, which is reason enough to be a target with these attention seekers and value appropriators. With proxy season wrapping up last month for most public companies, we had a chance to see how climate change type proposals fared, and I am happy to report they fared quite poorly across the board. Shareholders rejected proxy proposals that called for four of the nation's biggest banks to phase out financing for new fossil fuel expansion, and they did so resoundingly. At Citigroup, a measly 10% of shareholders voted for such a proposal. At Bank of America, a similar proposal fared even worse, winning only 7% support. A Goldman Sachs proposal along the same lines also came in at an embarrassing 7% for. Um, Wells Fargo shareholders also voted down a proposal offered by the Sierra Club Foundation. And again, these just aren't losses, but embarrassing ones for the anti-fossil fuel crowd. And here's a sour grapes quote from one of the extreme environmental groups lamenting the vote counts and the vote counts. Investors have once again failed to align their voting with their stated positions on climate-related financial risk. The fact that so many investors voted against asking banks to reconcile their climate pledges with their fossil fuel financing activities suggests that most investors still don't understand that climate change poses a systemic risk to their entire portfolios and the economy. You know, I don't think so. I think investors get this issue just fine, and I think they are starting to get where these nefarious proposals are being ginned up from and what the true agenda is. And by the way, the Citigroup and Bank of America voting outcomes were actually slightly worse than they were for similar proposals filed last year. So shareholders are getting smarter and wising up over time to this sham. While we are on the topic of fossil fuels and climate change, let's make a connection to some dire predictions from the self and media appointed experts in the fields of environmentalism and climate change. Let's run through some of these and then compare them to the tape of what actually happened. I'm going to start with doom and gloom from a recognized name in media, Life Magazine. Back in its 1970 Earth Day edition, Life Magazine stated, quote, scientists have solid experimental and theoretical evidence to support the following predictions. In a decade, urban dwellers will have to wear gas masks to survive air pollution. By 1985, air pollution will have reduced the amount of sunlight reaching Earth by one half, end quote. Dead wrong on both predictions, should have stuck with cover photos life. How about in January 2006, the high priest in the Church of Climate and the inventor of the internet himself, Al Gore, claimed that if we didn't take drastic measures, that's the term he used, to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, we would reach a, as he put it, point of no return in 10 years, which would have been back in 2016 if you're doing the math, because he said that in 2006. But here we are in 2023, alive and kicking. Let's go with someone more recent, but in some ways most dramatic of all. That is Congresswoman AOC, 
who has compared the direct existential threat of climate change to that of Nazi Germany, predicting in 2019 that the world will end in 12 years if climate change isn't addressed. Do you think anyone will hold her accountable to that position down the road? Yeah, I doubt anyone will hold her accountable as well. Let's jump from talking heads in the Church of Climate and connect to talking heads on the radio waves of the past. I want to conclude our week's episode by remembering disc jockey icon Casey Kasem, who passed away this week back in 2014. He, of course, hosted American Top 40 for years. Many of you know that I love rock and pop music and everything I learned, just about everything I learned about it or heard about it from my youth came from American Top 40 and that distinctive voice of Casey Kasem. Kasem began hosting the original American Top 40 in 1970 and remained there until 1988. And then he would host another countdown titled, I think it was Casey's Top 40 until 1998. Now he was from Detroit and his family was of Lebanese descent. Interestingly, uh, his father named him after Kamal Ataturk, the great Turkish leader. And Kasem served during the Korean War. He was a radio disc jockey working at different radio stations across the Midwest for years. And he did some, in fact, he did a lot of voice acting. I don't know if you know this, but Casey Kasem for years was the voice of Shaggy on the Scooby-Doo cartoon series. But in the summer of 1970, Kasem's career took off. That's when he, along with three partners, launched the weekly radio program American Top 40, or AT40 for short. And this might be hard to believe today with the music industry being how it is. But back then, Top 40 radio was on the decline and DJs preferred to play album-oriented rock. At AT40... It had an awesome format that it retained week by week, and the show counted down hits from number 40, of course, down to number one, based on the Billboard Hot 100 weekly chart. But there was more than just the countdown of music for the program's entertainment, because Kasem mixed throughout the show each week biographical information and trivia about the artists. You got to learn about whoever was performing, where they were from, how they got their start, what their thoughts were on a topic. And there were also flashbacks that he would play, sort of a hit number one single from a decade ago and the like. Uh, My favorite aspect of AT40 was the trivia. Kasem would always be taking letters from listeners asking things like, you know, which band had the most number one hits in the 70s or what are the three biggest selling singles of all time, that type of stuff. And it was useless, but endlessly fun information, particularly because he would often ask the questions before a commercial break in the show. And then he'd give the answer after the commercials were over. So he had time to think about the question. And of course, there was the long distance dedication. Who can forget about that? That's the segments where Casey read heartfelt letters from listeners who wanted to dedicate songs to distant loved ones. There were some real tear jerkers in that segment, I can tell you. Now, perhaps the most famous piece of AT40 was at the very end of each show. Casey ended every week with his signature sign off, which was keep your feet on the ground and keep reaching for the stars. I read somewhere that Kasem added, and keep your radio tuned right here, wherever it was in 1977, which sort of reminds me how he would each week say that American Top 40 was played on great radio stations like, and again, whatever the call letters were from whatever city, and you started to learn geography as a kid listening to AT40. And sometimes you would actually hear a local radio station from your town be mentioned by him, which was of course extra special. Now, the show expanded, I think, from three hours to four hours eventually. That was the final runtime. Kasem was convinced that AT40 would be a success from the start, 
He once said, when we first went on the air, I thought we would be around for at least 20 years. He also said, I knew the formula worked. I knew people tuned in to find out what the number one record was. So to channel the awesome Casey Kasem, keep your feet on the ground, constant listeners, and keep reaching for the stars this coming week. And keep your podcast favorites bookmarked right where it's at to the far middle.